The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors. And now, it's time for Radio Jobline with your host, Scott Possessor, right here on 103.9 LI News Radio. Welcome, everybody. It must be Saturday afternoon from 2 to 3 p.m., or it might be Wednesday night from 9 to 10 p.m. We're on twice a week to talk about your career, talk about topics related to success in the workplace, the workplace itself. Um, In the 30-plus years between television and radio, I'm doing this show. uh, There isn't a subject we haven't talked about, but one that has emerged as a topic of great interest to my audience for some reason, and I guess maybe you can tell me better than I know, is boardrooms. We had a guest on so far twice um, in the last uh, year uh, that broke records on our LinkedIn post and and got uh, 2,000 impressions, uh, you know, after we posted it on LinkedIn. Now, for comparison speaking, we usually get 1,000 or 1,500, so that was very high. So we did it again couple of months later and the same thing happened people seem to be fascinated by what goes on in the boardroom so once again we're going to talk about boards we have with us uh, beverly uh, ban the president of board advisor llc and the author of becoming a boardroom star which became a number one amazon business bestseller earlier this year Bev has worked with more than 200 boards of directors over the past 25 years across the United States and around the world. She's one of the foremost experts on board effectiveness issues and believes every board should be a beacon of excellence at the top of the organization it governs. Her new book, Becoming a Boardroom Star, focuses on how board members from new recruits to experienced chairs can raise their boardroom game in practical ways, increasing their, their influence and impact at the board table. Welcome, Beverly. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's it's actually a great topic for us, Beverly. We didn't, you know, I've been on, on the air between television and radio more than 30 years. And uh-huh. we didn't start talking about boards until about a year ago. And then all of a sudden, people were fascinated by the subject. So you remember when Mark Fister was on, uh, he, yeah. he, he did a great job for us. And um, uh, he just talked about, you know, what goes on and how to get into a board and so on. But tonight, we're going to talk about how to become a boardroom star. Uh, and, and really, the power is very, very strong in the boardroom. You know, a lot of people think the CEO runs the company, but depending on the size of the company, if it's big enough to have a board, um, that's where the power lies. Or you actually, you're going to tell us, Beverly. So tell us a little bit about you and, and what you do before we get started. Well, sure. Um, you know, I when I was in, sort of an impressionable young attorney, I uh, worked at a company uh, actually up in Canada, and I saw a board comprised of very well-respected, successful business people. They'd all been on the cover of Canadian business, and they made some absolutely horrific decisions that led to that company going down the drain. Mm. And more than 30,000 people lost their jobs, many of them my friends. Mm. And I got really interested in boards because I saw firsthand the impact on people's lives of bad board decisions. And uh, I wasn't interested in the compliance realm and sort of, you know, legally putting... 
uh, lipstick on a pig, if you will, through regulatory compliance. I was interested in, no kidding, how do you make a board a genuine asset in overseeing an organization? And I've had the great privilege over the last two and a half decades to uh, work in boardrooms, not only across the United States, but around the world, uh, mostly public companies, but I've also worked with some boards of uh, private companies, family control companies, and nonprofits. Let's set up the show a little bit, uh, Beverly, and talk about some scandals. Some boards, I, I, you know, when I looked at your material, I go, boy, this is interesting. The, the listeners are going to love this. Tell us what's been happening in boardrooms here in the United States. Well, this past week, Scott, was just uh, tremendous. We had uh, a number of bombshells. So there's uh, three or four, actually. We'll, we'll talk about Apple, of course, is the biggest one. Um, you know, Apple uh, has so much of its manufacturing in China and um First of all, we were getting, you know, media reports about um, police in, uh, I think it was the factory in Zhengzhou, where they were beating uh, the factory workers because of noncompliance with the lockdowns. And then uh, following on the heels of that, you know, we had this situation where these, these poor people who were welded into an apartment building because of the zero COVID lockdown policy of the CCP, they all burned to death. Mm. And so there were, you know, protests all over China, and, and we had them here in New York, we had them in San Francisco, we had them in Toronto, um, you know, with the protesters holding up white uh, pieces of paper to say, we want freedom of expression, um, these sorts of things. And then it came to light that uh, there was a tool that protesters had used at the Hong Kong protests in uh, 2019 called AirDrop. It was a function in the Apple smartphones, and that had been limited um, in mainland China only. Mm-hmm. And what that did is it sort of hobbled the protesters' ability to communicate with each other without um, the Chinese authorities being able to detect them. Mm. And so all of this blew back hard on Apple. And uh, so they had a big human rights um, debacle, and Apple is a company that kind of virtue signals about its, uh, you know, commitment to things that's got, you know, they got Al Gore on their board about... Um, you know, climate uh, issues, and, and they're very into social justice issues, and suddenly, you know, they're right in the middle of um, a human rights uh, problem where they're on the wrong side. Hmm. And, you know, what's more, what, we're, what we've been seeing in, um, just in China generally is, I think CNBC had a story the other day where they said, you know, the, the orders for manufacturing from China are down 40% um, from the United States because... Um, because of the lockdowns and the policies of CCP, the supply chains are becoming very unreliable. So finally, over the weekend, Apple's board clearly, um, you know, called Tim Cook and said, we need to have a, a board call. I mean, I don't know that personally, but I, I would assume that's what any uh, good board would do in these circumstances. And they announced that they were going to be moving um, a lot of their iPhone manufacturing over to India and Vietnam. Hmm. All right, so the board was sweating that one out, um, and, and there's more. There's more. Tell us more. Well, well, even before we leave Apple, um, it's interesting. On uh, Sunday, I think it was, the Wall Street Journal editorial board came out, and they basically said that any board um, really owes it to their shareholders to take a look at their exposure in China right now. And one of the really almost frightening scenarios that they put out there that I think is is very important to think about is what if China actually invades Taiwan and we face a situation sort of like companies with Russian business interests faced when Putin went into Ukraine. Mm. 
um, you know, really savvy boards, they kind of war game out um, crisis scenarios. You know, they look at what would happen if we had a cybersecurity attack or if our CEO was kidnapped or hit by a bus. Um, and so one of the things I think that boards really uh, need to think about is, um, you know, what would we be facing if um, there was that invasion we had to divest? What would that mean for our supply chain? What would that mean for our revenues? What would that mean for our assets? And what would be our plan Bs or ways to mitigate that? And, you know, just stepping back and doing that in the boardroom with the management team um, in an unhurried way would set the board up and the company up a lot better if, you know, God forbid, they were in that situation and had to react to it. Beverly, were you surprised that China seemed to succumb to the protesters to some degree with the lockdowns and suddenly things have changed over there? Well, they, they've changed to some extent. I mean, they've, they've put the lockdowns, uh, you know, uh, modified the lockdowns. And I think that is a, is a positive thing. Um, I'm not sure uh, that I think they're probably treating the protesters terribly well. Um, we may not know about that. And China, though, however, has a lot of a long track record of human rights issues, including, you know, the Uyghurs and the concentration camps and the forced labor and things like that. Mm. So, you know, that that's certainly a positive step. But uh, by no means uh, do I think that that allows us to say, oh, things are, you know, fine in China in the area of human rights, if that's something that you know, people are concerned about. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's nice to see any improvements. All right, let, let, let's move it on to BlackRock. Well, BlackRock um, really made uh, headlines also last week because uh, the state of Florida decided to take $2 billion um, out of their pension fund. Now, BlackRock is huge. I mean, it's more than $8 trillion it's got under investment. So that's a drop in the bucket, but it was somewhat symbolic. And um, I think part of the issue with BlackRock is... Um, the state of Florida feels BlackRock has been one of the uh, main proponents of ESG. And uh, that stands for environmental social governance. Um, when you think about some of those things, though, uh, where BlackRock has been heavily criticized is because it's been so bullish on China. Hmm. And if you're genuinely committed to environmental issues, I mean, this is the world's polluter in the world. This is the world's largest producer and consumer of coal. So if you're genuinely committed to environmental issues, why are you channeling, you know, billions of dollars in U.S. pension funds into China? Hmm. So I think that's one issue. I think a second issue is it gets back to the human rights issues on the social issues and the social justice issues. Again, um, if you're genuinely a proponent of that, why are you, you know, investing so heavily into a market where there's clearly a track record of, you know, quite horrific human rights um, abuses. Mm. And then when you get to governance, um, you know, the governance of BlackRock, I mean, BlackRock is a very large board for a public company. It's 16 people. There's, uh, you know, it's common for the chairman CEO to sit on the board, uh, but uh, there's, there's a former employee and uh, a current employee. Now, that former employee has been out of the C-suites for a while, so technically under the NYSE rule, she's independent. But that's fairly uncommon. Um, they, had a lead, they have a lead independent director because they combine the roles of chairman and CEO. I don't necessarily think that's a problem. However, their lead independent director has uh, been on the board for more than 20 years. 
Now, if we were in Britain, they have a rule that says if you've been consecutively on a board for more than 10 years, you're not considered independent anymore because you're too compromised by management. Hmm. And so then the last thing is that, uh, you know, there's CEO Larry Fink, um, and, and I'm the first to say it's difficult to transition a founder, and he is a founder of the company, but uh, he's 70 years old. And most boards at this stage would probably be looking at a CEO succession plan. So when you look at governance and you look at BlackRock, um, you know, again, they're a proponent of the G and ESG, but uh, people who live in glass boardrooms probably shouldn't throw stones. Yeah, I hear you. And uh, very well said. And then you have one more. Uh, is that uh, Balenciaga? Yeah, Balenciaga is really interesting because their parent company is uh, called Caring. Uh, they're the second largest. Uh, luxury brand, uh, good luxury, luxury goods brand in the world. Um, they own Gucci, they own Brioni and Alexander McQueen and several others in addition to um, Balenciaga. Um, and what's been interesting about that is, you know, people were frankly kind of horrified um, by this holiday ad campaign they had with toddlers pictured with, um, you know, teddy bears with kind of bondage attire. <laughs> and you know, this caused on Twitter, I think cancel Balenciaga was, you know, one of the number one trends. Uh, people were saying this is child exploitation. This is glamorizing pedophilia. Uh, one of their stores, I think in London, was vandalized. People were protesting outside many of their other stores. So this is a real reputational cesspool that Balenciaga got into. And um, you certainly can't blame the board for the corporate advertising. Okay, They don't approve corporate advertising. That's micromanagement. However, um, it's up to them to sort of safeguard a company's reputation and goodwill because that's inherent value to the brand. Yeah. And they clearly didn't do that. And what's really interesting is that nobody's called out that board. Mm. You know, up in uh, Toronto about four weeks ago, the entire board of Hockey Canada and the CEO had to resign because of a scandal involving sexual assault allegations. Mm. Whereas at Varing, we're hardly hearing anything. At uh, Caring Sir, we're hardly hearing anything. And what's more, uh, one of their directors is a woman named uh, Emma Watson. You may have heard of her. She's a British actor who played Hermione Granger in the Harry Potter series. Right. And I don't think I'd want her on my audit committee, but she certainly has a lot of credentials as an activist. Um, you know, she's been involved in the entertainment industry branch of Me Too. She's... Uh, I guess, authored, you know, bullying rules for the British film industry. She's raised a fund that is to avoid, I think she calls it a, a culture of uh, abuse and um, impunity. Well, uh, I would think somebody like that, why you have people with those kind of credentials on their board is that they should be very thoughtful about reputational damage. Yeah. And now that that damage is done, um, I would think that's somebody who should probably and, uh, you know, take a little bit of accountability for that. And, you know, if you want to talk about a culture of impunity, nobody seems to be being held accountable at Balenciaga at all. Hmm. So, you know, it, it's not yeah. hard to see why companies need a board, because look at all the trouble they can get into. You know, if it's a publicly traded company and, and all the money is in stock, you know, if they make a mistake... You know, it, it, it could be billions or trillions of dollars lost. So that's, that's, that's exactly right, Scott. And you can't, 
you can't sort of saddle the board with every decision, but they are the sober second thought at the top of the company. Right. And, the, you know, that's what I expect a good board to do. That's where the buck should stop. And that's where they should intervene to ask the tough questions and make sure management's not going off in a destructive direction. Right. So when you see, um, just taking an example, Beverly, uh, Elon Musk, okay? Yeah. And you see Tesla and, th- and decisions that have been made at Tesla and now Twitter and uh, other companies that he owns as well. It's not just him. There's a board of directors that, that governs you know, all of these decisions. Am I right? Or are there some CEOs that just take complete control? There is a a difference between um, management and governance, okay? Um, And I think that's a really important line. When you're governing a company, when you're on the board of directors, you're not managing it. You're not actually making those decisions necessarily, but you're asking the tough questions and you're approving or disapproving some of those decisions. Right. You know? So that is kind of where the buck stops on on the decisions, not only at, you know, high-profile companies like Tesla or Twitter, but also at, um, you know, even small hospitals or, um, you know, startup companies that have just done their first IPO on the NASDAQ. Yeah. Um, that's what the board is really there for, and it's a very, very important role. Yeah, now that I think of it, uh, I, I kind of do think Elon Musk made those Twitter decisions without consulting anybody. Well, some decisions are truly within his purview, mm-hmm. um, but those that are really impacting the company um, in in certain ways, you, it kind of goes down. It goes into that governance management line. Yeah. What you don't want is a CEO that feels they have to consult their board on everything. That's impossible to manage. Right. All right, so let's yeah. talk about boardroom power versus executive power. Well, that's a really important decision, Scott. I'm, I'm glad you, distinction, Scott, I'm glad you brought that up. Because power in the executive suite typically comes from the decisions that you make. You know, you've decided to go into this market, or you've hired these people on your team and they're fantastic and they've, they've produced great results, or you've decided to, you know, exit this product or whatever it is, or do this merger. Um, it's from your decisions. Boards, on the other hand, they make group decisions. And so boardroom power is all about the amount of influence you can have in the boardroom with your fellow directors. That's what boardroom power is about. And that is a real distinction for people when they shift from the executive suite to sitting at the board table. Okay. So, so uh, a good distinction that needed to be made, and we did it. Um, well, let's talk about um, how does someone develop the kind of influence and impact? You know, the, the, you just talked about it, but how do you develop it? Yeah. So, first of all, I don't think taking a lot of these governance courses is really that um, important. If you, if you want to do that, that's fine. But um, first of all, it's important if you're going to be on a board that you have something in terms of your background or your expertise that's relevant to the company's business. You know, because that allows you to make a much more significant contribution in the board discussions and in the board decision making. And that's really the first element of having that kind of influence. So let me give you an example. Um, Some of the best board members I've worked with on different boards, they're people who have actually come out of that industry. Um, They no longer have, you know, they're no longer active in the industry of the company they're governing. So therefore, there's no conflict of interest. But because they're veterans of the industry, they know it inside and out. And so they are able to make some really important contributions um, and 
very often other board members rely on their insights about the industry, and they can provide not only a counterpoint to management, they can provide a lot of um, good advice to management because they know the industry so well. So there's an example of, you know, directors who really have a lot of boardroom influence. On the flip side, a story that um, always stuck with me is that there was a board that uh, they only had one female director. And she was fantastic. She was one of the best directors. And unfortunately, there was a health issue um, with her husband uh, that happened about a month before the proxy was going to print. And she decided to um, exit all of her boards uh, because of what they were facing as a family. Uh, hang on just yeah. one second. We, gotta, we have a news break coming up. Could you put a bookmark sure. in there for me? And uh, we're going to come right back to that to that uh, sentence as soon as we get, get a news break here. You listen to Radio Jobline with Scott Possessor. We've got Beverly Bean on the phone tonight. Uh, excellent. Uh, if you're interested in boards, folks, she's an expert's expert. Stay with us on this. Uh, a lot more to talk about. If you'd like to be on Radio Jobline, you can write to me, scottp118 at gmail.com. I would be happy to have you on the show and your idea on the program. Uh, we do it. We do a program every week. Been doing it for uh, a thousand years and we'd like to continue with your ideas uh, stay with us we got a news break coming up we'll be right back and now welcome back to radio job line with your host scott possessor right here on li news radio Welcome back to Radio Jobline. You're listening to Beverly Bean tonight talking about boards. One of the much more popular subjects for our radio program for some reason. I guess it's where all the power is, all the top decisions are made. We can all just imagine, you know, the board sitting around talking about these very sensitive, delicate, um, expensive issues that uh, could result in the in the making or breaking a company. And I guess that's why everyone is so interested in it. Before we get back to Beverly, I want to talk to you all about a website called Bizshout. That's B-I-Z-Z-S-H-O-U-T dot com. This is a very interesting website, folks. If you're looking for a new Vista or a new platform, uh, this is somewhere between LinkedIn and Facebook. It has the best elements of both. We know the CEO, Charlie Lee, a fantastic guy. I wonder if he's forming a board. I suppose he is. Um, but uh, if you're looking for new ways to communicate with other people and meet new people, check out bizshout.com, B-I-Z-Z shout.com. Okay, Beverly, back to you. Sorry we had to interrupt you in the middle of that story. It was very interesting. Please continue. Oh, thanks, Scott. Um, so the flip side of... Um someone who really lacked a lot of influence in a board is a story where uh, there was a board that only had one female director who unfortunately had to resign um, unexpectedly because of a health issue in her family. And the board uh, did not want to go to press with their proxy for shareholder voting with an all-male board. So they were very concerned to find a new female director right away. And they didn't take a lot of time really defining what expertise or background they might want in a director. They just, you know, wanted a, a very professional, uh, well-spoken, intelligent um, you know, board member who, who qualified as, uh, you know, met that diversity um, check that they wanted on their board. So um, they met a woman who was a public relations expert, and she uh, is probably one of the best known in the entire country. And 
she was very polished. She was very articulate. Uh, she was very nice, and the board liked her, and they put her on the board. Now, here was the problem. This is a company that didn't have, mercifully, a lot of PR problems, okay? Mm-hmm. In fact, it almost never came up. And this particular uh, director had a lot of depth in crisis PR, but she didn't have a lot of breadth. And when she would weigh in on, say, finance issues or even human resources issues, she was completely off the mark. Mm. And so, consequently, um, you know, not only did she not have influence within, you know, about a year or so, uh, even though she was very well liked, people were like, look, we really need someone in this board seat that can make a stronger contribution than she can. Right. So that's really the first issue is that, you know, the, the foundation of boardroom influence really has to do with your background and expertise and whether, you know, there's a relevance of that to the company and the issues the board's going to be discussing because that's what allows you to weigh in and uh, make those, you know, challenging comments, offer good insights, and really build that kind of boardroom influence and yeah. power. So from what I've observed so far from the the three conversations I've had about this on the air, um, you, you have to pick your board carefully, but also you, you have to pick a board carefully. You, you, you shouldn't, you, you've got to be able to make a contribution, Beverly, that that is worthwhile for the good of the company, not just be a smart person or a charismatic person or uh, a born leader or something. You got to know finance, you got to know governance, you have to know a lot of these things. How do people even get on boards? Well, there's, there's a number of different ways. I mean, there's, there are headhunters, um, you know, that find uh, board candidates for boards. Uh, many people, uh, you know, get their first board because they know someone who's on another board. Um, and then there are, uh, you know, there are websites uh, devoted to people who are interested in being on boards. There are courses for people that want to be on boards, and you know, sometimes their approach for lists of candidates. Um, so there's a myriad of ways. Um, what I have found is that a lot of people ask me, "How should I get on my first board?" And it depends. Um, we've seen a tremendous amount of diversity recruitment over the last, you know, 18 to 24 months. And I would say that, you know, if you, if you are a diverse candidate and you've got some really interesting C-suite experience in, you know, finance, major operations, um, you know, tech, uh, by all means, you know, go to the search firms, that sort of thing, because, uh, you know, it's, it's really... Um, you're the type of candidate that everybody's looking for these days. But if you're not, um, how a lot of people are finding their first board seat, quite frankly, is through their own network. Mm-hmm. You know, people they know that they've worked with, um, people they'd even use as a reference. Um, approach them and say, look, I'm interested in getting on a board, and here's why. Here's the kind of board I'm looking for, and here's what I think I bring to the board table. And ask them who they think you should talk to. Um, a lot of people I know are getting on boards from, from having those conversations within their network because these are people that may have a contact on the board and who know you and will speak well of you. And that's how many people get their first board seat. And also private equity. There is a lot of opportunity in private equity. Um, I know several people who just um, got on their first boards through, through the private equity route and really are enjoying them. You know, you uh, you mentioned the the basic tenets of how to get on a board. It's the same thing with job hunting, Beverly. You, yeah. you use your network. 
you know, there are search firms that can help you. You know, it's, it's pretty similar, but I know the uh, the paperwork is different. You don't use a, a traditional resume. You use a, a much more comprehensive document, right? No, actually, it's a little bit less, if you want to know the truth. What I think you want to be doing in a board CV um, is, you know, laying out in sort of one page, you know, what's the value proposition of you being a director and specifically target it to the company that you're looking at. So no resume at all? Well, you can put the resume as an appendix on the back, and so I think that you should. A traditional resume? Yeah, that's fine, or, um, you know, you can pump it up a bit more if you like and, and focus it. You know, if you've sat on some other boards, you might want to emphasize that a bit more. People want to look, though, at what your actual background is. Um, but you want that one-pager to really uh, be the cell document, and I have a second sort of piece of advice with this. I have seen an awful lot of people... Uh, create these CVs that are very vague and fluffy. You know, if I see another person who's, you know, one pager starts with, you know, a visionary leader with a track record of success. I mean, come on. You want to sort of say, you know, this person was a chief operating officer of, you know, a $700 million company with operations in Dubai and Hong Kong or what have you. You've got to get specifics because that's credibility. Right. What about on a smaller scale, though, Beverly? Like a lot of companies don't, first of all, they don't even have a board. So uh, let me look at, uh, let me just explain Long Island's economy for you. You've got 83,000 companies or thereabouts. 90% of them have less than 50 employees. And, right. and, and, and a very high number, I'm going to say 80%, have less than 25 employees. Right. So they would not have a board. And, and frankly, having a board and going public is tremendously expensive. It eats up an, a, a huge amount of the CEO's time. In fact, estimates are, and you may find this very surprising, Scott, I did when I first saw the numbers, a public company chief executive officer spends roughly 20% of their time on board-related matters. Mm. That's preparing for board meetings with their team, going to the board and committee meetings, debriefing after conversations with board members between the meetings, etc. That eats up roughly 20% of a public company CEO's time. Mm. So, you know, if you can actually avoid having a board, there's, you know, there's some real benefits in that. And for small companies, why would you need it? But I think in, you know, in that community, there's probably an awful lot of successful people that are sitting on boards of nonprofits. Right. Uh, whether those are hospitals or colleges or, you know, what have you. And all of these principles apply equally to, um, you know, the nonprofit board world. Right. I used, to, I used to work for a university, and they didn't have a board, but they had something called an ELT, an executive leadership team. So these were the top people of the company from all the key areas, had a monthly meeting or actually, excuse me, a weekly meeting, um, you know, to discuss what's going on at the company, give a little report on their area and so on. So I think that's the solution for the smaller non-public company. Yeah, it could be. Or, you know, it, but if you're a certain um, type of charitable organization, you are obliged to have a board. Right. You know, just depending what your um, designation is for, for your taxes. Okay. All right. So uh, we have to make the most of our director orientation. Tell us about that. Yeah. If you look at, um, you know, you get on your first board or, or on a board, a new board that's new to you, and you may even know the organization, uh, perhaps you've volunteered with it or what have you, but most director orientation programs are not very effective. 
In fact, it's sort of a drinking from a fire hose experience for most board members. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you'll sit down perhaps with each member of the executive team, and that's great because at least you'll get to meet them, spend some time with them, build rapport. But they're you know, giving you this sort of dizzying download of information, and you're just trying to digest as much as you can. So my best advice to anyone when you first get on a board is, by all means, go through that orientation, but then stand back and think about what else do you want to know so that you have a good foundation and understanding of this business or this nonprofit or whatever this entity is that you're going to be governing. You know, would it be useful for you to go on some site visits? So, example, in a nonprofit context, I was working with um, an organization up in Boston that um, they were a, a dental or oral health um, group. And what they started doing with their new board members is they had a, a charitable initiative where dentists would go down to Appalachia and, you know, provide these services. And board members, they started putting their new board members um, out with these dentists, and they found it so rewarding and so enriching. And um, these are the kinds of things you want to think about is to give people a real hands-on feel for the business. And if they're not doing that and you're a new board member, think about something that will give you that experience. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if, if too many people are interested in the glamour of being on a board and uh, perhaps the reward as well, uh, or, or are they really qualified to be on the board? I think there's a lot of people that want to be on boards that quite candidly aren't qualified mm. um, or, you know, are so narrow in terms of their focus that they probably aren't going to add that much value. Like, for example, the person who was the crisis PR expert. Right. So we, we see that a lot. Um, and I'll be honest with you, being on a board and being a good director is a lot of work. And that's really the second, er, you know, imperative when it comes to having influence in the boardroom. It's work ethic. You know, everyone can tell who's read the materials and who's taken the time to really think about the issues and comes with some really insightful questions. Everybody can see that. And, you know, those who don't, those who are really just there for the glamour and, you know, want to do a once-over lightly and come in the boardroom, they're not going to have much influence, um, you know, because it's evident that they're, um, you know, they're dodging it. So, I mean, the board kind of functions together. So what if one of the board members is a bit of a rogue, you know, uh, definitely in it for the wrong reasons, doesn't have the contributions? Uh, how do, you, do you get fired right right there in the boardroom or, or does the rest of the board meet? You know, how does that work? So getting rid of a bad director is seriously the biggest problem in corporate America, mm. even in the nonprofit world right now. Nobody wants to upset that apple cart. Uh, everybody just kind of works around it. And I think that's a great disservice to the organization. To me, that's what good board leadership is all about. If you want to be the chairman of the board or if you want to be the lead director, um, if you've got a performance problem, if somebody is clearly coming to meetings, they're unprepared, they're hogging the airtime, they're taking a patronizing tone with management or fellow board members, something needs to be said to them. And um, that's really what a good board chair or a good lead director should be doing. But far too often, that's not happening. And, Scott, there's a really interesting study that's done by PricewaterhouseCoopers every year. They go out and they study 700 board members of public companies across the United States and ask them a whole lot of questions about their boards. One of the questions they ask is, do you think that uh, one of your board members should not be renominated? Well, Last time I saw the study, 49% said yes. 
Hmm. Just like half the boards in America say we have at least one person on here that shouldn't be on the board. And another 21% said that two or more should go. Wow. Wow. So managing director performance is the single biggest problem in the boardrooms. Uh, and I wouldn't just say this is an American problem. I've seen this all over the world. Um, we can talk about some practical solutions to that, but it really comes down to board leadership. Okay. All right, we've only got a few minutes left, but let's try to get through these, these last two points, which is pick your spots in board meetings. <laughs> Spots is really important. You know, um, when I see people that have a lot of influence in the board, they are not the people who are weighing in on every single issue. That's actually the hallmark of somebody who doesn't really understand the director's role. Um, they're hogging up too much air. Um, so what you want to do when you're preparing, it goes back to the work ethic piece, you really want to think of what are some points or good insights or questions you want to ask that you think are really important. And, you know, even if you ask one or two great questions in a meeting, that's um, often the hallmark of some of the best directors. So pick your spots. If somebody, you know, brings up the point you were going to before, what you don't want to be is one of these, oh, I agree with so-and-so directors, and that's all you do is agree with somebody else instead of bringing some fresh perspectives to the table. Right. Let, that, let the point go and move on to your next good point. It does sound like you're going to have to do a lot of homework in order to get that right. That's exactly right. I mean, I think people often underestimate the amount of time it takes to really be effective in preparing for the meetings. Mm. And, uh, you know, you need to allocate, you know, a good four hours or more um, for most boards to really prepare. And then if you're on board committees, there'll be more time for that, too. I had a, a very good experience working very closely with a public company, a $13 billion public company with, um, you know, obviously a board of directors. And I remember, because I was friendly with, with the top management there, how it was all hands on deck for a board meeting. I mean, they just put every resource, everybody in the company was working to get the yeah. board the board right. And I guess they, well, they did it well because they went from a billion dollars to 13 billion. Well, it also, the, I, I think that's, that's pretty common in the Fortune 500. Um, you know, management work hard because they want, um, they want to impress the board, frankly. They want the board to feel that the company is being well run. So they want to really think through the issues so they're having a good dialogue. But it also comes back to you look at the investment of management time. You've talked about all the time management spent, and I talked earlier about how CEOs spend 20% of their time on board-related matters. That goes back to you want your board to be a genuine asset if you're investing that kind of time and effort of your management team. Mm. You know, you want people coming out of the board meeting going, wow, they brought out, that was a tough meeting, but boy, did they bring up some good points. All right, so, so you got to learn to ask the toughest questions in the nicest way. Well, that's another great point, Scott, which is that, you know, I think a big mistake. Some directors think, oh, I'm, I'm the most impactful director in the room because I ask these tough questions. Well, if, you know, tone has so much to do with communication. Right. And, um, you know, there's a rule that's something like, what is it? 70% of communication is really the tone that you use. And people who use an abrasive, accusatory tone in their questions, here's what happens. Management becomes defensive. They clam up. They just want to get out of the room. 
And so whenever I'm asking directors, because I do a lot of work in board evaluation, director evaluation, and I say, you know, who are some of the best directors and what makes them so good? One of the responses I'm always hearing is, this person knows how to ask the toughest question in the nicest way. Mm. And, you know, so it, it brings challenging issues out but not in a way that people are defensive. In fact, it opens a great dialogue. All right. If you could just take a, a, just a few, just a half a minute, tell us about your organization and what you could perhaps do for some listeners. Well, thank you. Um, so I uh, have worked with, um, as you said earlier, roughly 200 boards over the past 25 years. Uh, my focus is on board effectiveness. Um, I do a lot of work with board evaluations, but I don't use surveys because I find them, you know, checkbox. Um, you've got to engage the board and you've got to engage in management because, you know, that's what makes good boards great and great boards vibrant is that kind of insightful feedback where you're constantly building and improving um, your board. And so I do a lot of work with that. And increasingly, I'm working a lot with new CEOs. Um, so if you're a new CEO of a public company or even a nonprofit where you've got a board, um, that is really challenging because typically in your career, managing up to that point was managing to one person, your boss. And suddenly, you've got, you know, nine or ten people that you're managing, which is the board. And it's not just building a great relationship with your chair. There are a lot of things that are important to do to lay that foundation well right out of the gates because that will help you for years to come. And uh, so increasingly, I'm working with um, new CEOs on um, that aspect. Of is, there a, is there a website, Beverly? Yes, um, it's boardadvisor.com, so www.boardadvisor.com. And one other thing I'd like to mention is my book, Becoming a Boardroom Star, um, the ebook version um, on Kindle is free as of tonight um, until Saturday, uh, December the 11th. So if anybody wants to download the book, if you've got um, an Amazon Kindle, um, you can download it for free. Um, anytime until I think it's midnight on uh, Saturday the 11th. All right. Fantastic. 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 Thank you so much for being with us, Beverly. That was spectacular. Uh, so much to know about how boards operate, function, and how they get, what they get right and how they get it wrong, too. Uh, and uh, those scandals were fascinating. So thank you so much for being with us. You're listening to Radio Jobline with Scott Possessor. If you want to be on the program, folks, you can write to me, scottp118 at gmail.com. I think I crossed the paths with, uh, uh, with Beverly on LinkedIn, so that's another thing. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, but write to me, scottp118 at gmail.com. Happy to have you on the show. Be back next week with another. Have a great week, everybody. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors.